Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Wonderful to be in your company again on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon here in the Highfelt. A little bit of rain about, which is always a good thing, I guess. And um, great to be here. Great to be able to be talking to you and sharing some thoughts today on Judaism 101.9. The idea, of course, of our program is the ability to share information, to give you some insights and perhaps to inform people about things that they may know, they may think they know, they may think that they don't know, um, and therefore to hopefully <coughs> to hopefully be able to provide some valuable intelligence and insight into things Jewish. Uh, for everybody on every level. Well, I thought a good starting point today would be, you know, we've just come through the Chag, the festival, on Monday of Tu Bishvat, Bishvat, the 15th of Shvat. And there is that strange debate that takes place as to how many New Year's are there. Um, it seems to be a very, very moot point and uh, an idea that People find difficulty wrapping their heads around How can there be more than one New Year? We're so conditioned to the fact that New Year means The beginning of the year The first day of January, for instance Or we've just kind of got our heads around I suppose that Jews have a New Year Which starts with Rosh Hashanah That that is our New Year But there's a whole debate about whether there are uh, three New Years or four New Years, there's all sorts of things about the New Years, and we even have this peculiarity of the New Year for the trees, which occurred, of course, on Monday. How about if I told you that there is more than one Purim? And now people are going to jump to conclusions and say, well, we knew that because there's Purim and there's Shushan Purim. And then, of course, there's Purim and there's Purim Katan. So what is Shushan Purim? Shushan Purim is the day after Purim, usually the day after Purim, a special date that was granted to the Jews in the time of Purim, the Purim story, those who were in the city of Shushan to have an extra day of a public holiday, an extra celebration, and in walled cities such as Jerusalem, Purim is actually celebrated on a different date often to the date that we have. So for instance, if Purim here is on a uh, on a Sunday in uh, in Jerusalem, it would be celebrated. All the things of Purim would take place on the Monday. So that's Shushan Purim. There's also Purim Katan, which is called the Minor Purim, Little Purim. What's Little Purim? Well, there's a Purim that is celebrated when we have a leap year, like we had last year. Um, it was a leap year, so there were two Adars. When there is the Adar Rishon, the first Adar, um, Purim is not celebrated in full on the 14th of um, Adar 1, but it is celebrated in full on the 14th of Adar 2. But 14th of Adar 1 is called Purim Katan, Little Purim. Little Purim means, obviously, there's some sort of influence on the day and the date. It's a day on which we um, kind of are in a more joyous mode than we ordinarily would be, but we don't do anything to mark Purim on that particular day. Well, how about if I told you that there was a Purim that was celebrated in a certain area of Spain, and it was called Purim Saragossa. 
Have you ever heard of Purim Saragossa? Purim Saragossa <coughs> is a fascinating and very, very beautiful story that came about from a, an incident, an event that happened, which I'd like to tell you about today. It's a fascinating incident, and the reason that it's important to tell you about it is because there is something that is so important about the ideas of each one of our Chagim, that they do kind of repeat themselves throughout history, that the story of Pesach, if you think about it, with its redemption message, kind of keeps on coming up, it keeps on coming back. We know when we think about Matan Toratenu, the time of Shavuot, when our Torah is given to us, well, just take, for example, that every single time that a man is called up to the Torah, he says, Notein HaTorah, God is the giver of the Torah, not the one who gave us the Torah. We understand that Torah has been given to us all the time. It is something that is current, it is something that is modern, it is something that is new, and it's been given to us all the time. So when we think about the idea of Purim, there have been so many times throughout history that Purim has cropped up, and a similar theme, a similar story, that it wouldn't surprise most, I guess, to know that there was the story of Purim Saragossa. And Purim Saragossa is something that happened in the 1400s in Spain. And we know that Spain was well known for the fact that there was the Spanish Inquisition. And when that Spanish Inquisition took place, of course, the Jews were banished from Spain. But there was this continued time of um, trying to pressure the Jews that went back for some time before that. People in Spain were very, very confident that they had all the answers with Christianity and that the idea of converting Jews was something that had to be done. It was like the unwritten mitzvah of the land to make sure that Jews became Christians rather than they stay Jews. And there was often this ongoing discrimination, this ongoing persecution, and the ongoing attempts to try and trip up the Jewish community. Well, one of these happened, one of these events happened in Aragon in Spain in a place called Saragossa. And there was once a very mighty ruler, a very strong-armed despot who ruled over this region in Spain. And he had many, many Jewish members of the communities and the cities, the towns that he ruled over. Saragossa was the, his capital city, and there was a large Jewish community there. And it was a tradition in the town that the king had many special occasions when he went and celebrated, and a great celebration would be held, and kind of a parade through the town square was held, and it was on those special occasions, which either, I suppose, marked the date of his coronation, or uh, the Republic's Day, or whatever it was that they were celebrating, it was a tradition in Saragossa that the Jews would come out, join in the celebration, and they did a strange, a fascinating thing. Now, you and I might not know this, but in uh, times gone by, <coughs> Sifrei Torah were either the type that we usually see in our shuls, and there are many like that dating back hundreds and hundreds of years, but there were also, and certainly in Spain, which was Sfarad, 
which was the Sephardi um, um, uh, core came from Spain. When we think about that, we know that Sifrei Torah, Torah scrolls, were encased in big elaborate boxes. They were placed inside these caskets, these boxes, which contained them, which held them. You sometimes see that if you're on a visit to the Kotel or if you go to a Sephardi shul, you'll know what I'm talking about, these beautiful Sephardi Torahs. And the way that the Jews participated in the king's celebrations was that they would come out holding those Torah cases. And it was well known that in order not to desecrate the Torahs in any way, they would leave the Torah scrolls inside in the shul, in the Oran Kodesh, in the Ark, just coming out and bearing those cases. And this is the foundation of a miraculous story that happened in Saragossa. And if you stay tuned, you'll hear more about it right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Okay, so are you making Aliyah or looking to invest in prime property in Israel? Leading Gauteng real estate agency, Adrian Hirsch Properties, is marketing four exciting new residential projects in Jerusalem, Netanya, Kfariona, and Harish. The developments are being built by Africa Israel residences, who are synonymous with high-quality new apartments featuring impressive specifications in sought-after residential neighborhoods. To find out more, Join Adrian Hirsch Properties at their exclusive expo on the 17th of February or at the Aliyah Expo in both Johannesburg and Cape Town or get in touch by emailing info at ahprop, that's ahprop.co.za. Okay, we've been talking about an event called Purim Saragossa and the idea behind this amazing story as we said, was something that was kicked off by Jews showing what they believe to be the greatest respect to the despot, to the ruler, to the uh, sort of emperor of their particular area in Spain in the mid-1400s. And what they used to do was to come out at any time of great parade or celebration for the king in order to participate, they would carry out the Torah scroll boxes, the caskets within which Torah scrolls, particularly in Spain, in the old Sephardi tradition, that they were held inside those boxes. They would bring them out into the street. They would parade with them. They would have their fanfare, and it was regarded as very symbolic of the Jews bringing their um, most highly acclaimed items um, out of their synagogues, out of their shuls, in order to celebrate with the king. Now, it just so happened that the king had an advisor, and the advisor's name was Marcus, and this Marcus didn't particularly like the Jews, and he tried all sorts of ways and means of trumping up charges against them, of finding ways to invent stories about them, of trying to incite a uh, discredit against the Jews. In fact, I think we could say he was an anti-Semite. And his anti-Semitic approach was something that really he never actually was able to get on top of. He never found a good enough way and means and reason to persuade the emperor, this ruler 
this uh, landowner and rich man who ruled over the fiefdom of uh, the area of Aragon, where Saragossa was the capital city in Spain, he wasn't able to convince him of uh, the heinousness, the negativity, and the problems that the Jews were creating, he believed, for Spain, for Christianity, and for all the neighborhoods in which they belonged. The king, of course, uh, the ruler himself, actually admired the Jews. He liked the way that they got on with things. He liked the way that they um, traded. He liked the way that they worked hard. He liked the fact that they were loyal. And he liked the fact that they participated in the way that they did by whenever he had a celebration that they would come out with their Torah scroll boxes and they would demonstrate their adherence, their praise, and their participation in the king's celebrations. Well, it just so happened that this Marcus, through his spies and through his uh, men on the ground and through his informers, managed to find out that actually what the Jews are doing is that they're bringing the empty caskets, the empty boxes. They are, in his mind, pretending that they're bringing the Torah scrolls to celebrate with the emperor. They're bringing them out to demonstrate how great they are, but, and how much they're involved, but actually the boxes are empty, and therefore their loyalty, he believed, is empty, and therefore their adherence to anything to do with the country, the king, and the civil society that they were a part of, that in fact it was half-hearted, it wasn't there at all. They had loyalty elsewhere, and their deep loyalty was certainly not for their emperor, their ruler over that area, their neighborhood their country, for Spain, or for everything that they held dear. Well, he managed to, through his sources, verify that, in fact, this is what the Jews were doing. This is what they were up to. And, of course, he went to the to the emperor, and he told him. He said, listen, these Jewish people are fakes, they're frauds. They are coming out with empty boxes. They're pretending that it's their Torah scrolls. And you, for all this time, have believed that they're actually parading their Torah scrolls. But they don't want to. They don't want to bring out those Torah scrolls. Those Torah scrolls, they're not going to bring to praise the king. They are not going to bring to praise Spain. They're going to leave them inside, and they're going to bring empty boxes. And he said, you know what we should do is let's catch them at their game. And soon thereafter, there was a grand celebration that was held through the streets of Saragossa. And this great celebration was, of course, attended by all the Jews. The Jewish community came out in force like they always did. And the leadership of the community was going to be carrying out the empty Torah scroll boxes. And then he said, when they're standing there in the street, Lifnei kol amba'ida. I'm not sure if you said that, but you know what I mean. In front of everybody, let's expose them. Let's ridicule them. Let everybody see. You are going to ask to see the inside of the scrolls of the boxes that they're carrying. They'll have to open them because there'll be lots of guards, soldiers, policemen, etc. And we will catch them, unhatch their unfortunate plan. And, of course, this is going to be a uh, way whereby... We can get rid of the Jews from this neighborhood. We can either then imprison them, we can kill them um, for uh, their show of treason, their show of disloyalty, and um, 
This is the plan that Marcus unhatched with this emperor, with this leader of that neighborhood. An amazing thing happened because on the night before this celebration was about to take place, the shamus, the shamus is otherwise known as the beadle, the person who was the curator, the janitor, the looker after of the biggest shul in that neighborhood in Saragossa, could not sleep. His sleep was disturbed. He couldn't fall asleep. He was worried about the parade. He uh, was worried about getting everything ready. He had already unpacked the Torah scrolls from their boxes. And the scrolls were on one side in the Oran Kodesh. And the boxes were standing waiting for the leadership of the community to come and take them and go out into the street with them. And he dozed off, it seems. And he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw the vision of a man with a white face, lots of light, long white beard. And the man who he perceived to be Eliyahu Anovi, Elijah the prophet, that this figure, this man, said to him, put the Torahs inside the boxes. Don't allow the Torahs to go out tomorrow without being inside the boxes. Now, he woke up, not quite sure what he should do. Um, does he go and tell the hierarchy? Does he discuss this with the rabbis? Um, should he make a big uh, tumul about it? They will think that he's crazy, and uh, they'll ridicule him, and they're not going to listen. And um, perhaps there is some deep message here. He's really, really bothered by it. He tosses and turns, and eventually he decides, late, middle of the night, that he is going to take his own action. And he finds his way back to his particular shul, unlocks the shul, goes inside, replaces quietly the Torahs into each of their particular boxes, and he knew well which one belonged in which. didn't take him that long. And then he went back to bed, slept through till the morning, when he went back and then arranged for everybody to come, them thinking they were picking up the empty boxes and walking out into the street with them. Unbeknown to him, the story has it, every single shamus of every single shul. Now, I have absolutely no idea from the story how many shuls there were, but it's understood that there were several. Several of the shuls in the neighborhood, but every shamus, every beadle, had had the same vision. The same dream on the night before this grand parade. And every one of them had gone to their shuls and actually replaced and put the Torahs, the Torah scrolls, into the boxes for the parade the next day. Well, <coughs> the parade kicks off. Imagine the band strikes up, the marching begins, and the parade um, comes through and to the town square now. Sitting there... On a very sturdy steed is Marcus, the chief advisor, who is wanting to unhatch this plot against the Jews. He is sitting there right next to the king because he wants to be there. He wants to help to engineer the real undressing, the real disgrace of the Jews in town through this incredible bit of information that he has. And he cannot wait for the particular moment when now all the Jews are gathered together, they're all standing holding their Torah scroll boxes 
these beautiful elaborate boxes, and along comes the parade. And at the right moment, he stops the emperor, the king, in his tracks. He says, let's stop over here. This is going to be the place in the town square, in front of everybody. Everybody is there on the grandstands. Everybody is there waiting to witness um, the beauty of the grandeur of this parade, and they're not expecting the strange twist. And here he says to the emperor, now's the chance, now's the time. The emperor then says to some of the Jewish men standing in the front there, he says, I am so enamored, I guess, with the, the beautiful um, accolade that you have given to me. I am so excited by the fact that you come out with those boxes, but I've never seen what's inside them. Wouldn't you care to open them and show me what's inside those boxes? Now, these guys holding them start sweating. They don't know that the Torah scrolls have been placed inside, and they are really, really in trouble, or they feel they're in trouble. And he says, please, open them. And he sends some of his guards over and forcibly they uh, demand that the boxes are open. And imagine the shock and the surprise of everybody there. Everybody, of course, except the Shamosim, the Beatles, those janitors, those guys who looked after the shuls. Imagine the surprise of everybody, including the Jewish guys who were holding the Torahs, that um, the Torahs were actually inside. And he looked at this Marcus and he said, look, Torah's inside this one. And they opened another one. Torah's inside here. Next one. And so on. And so they went down through all the Torahs that were brought. And every Torah was inside its particular box and had been brought to this magnificent parade. And the entire place erupted in joy and simcha, a celebration. What a wonderful tribute the Jewish people had given to this emperor, to this king, to this leader. The only one who was disgraced, of course, was Marcus. Marcus, the guy who had set the king up to um, try and find, find fault with the Jews. And here now, the king turns to him and says, you're a fraud. You're a liar. You put me up to this whole thing. You wanted to disgrace the Jews. Let whatever you wanted to happen to them happen to you. You wanted to kill them. He ordered the execution of poor old Marcus. Well, I'm not sure if it's poor old Marcus, but Marcus was um, taken off to be executed um, because of the plot that he wanted to unravel and he wanted to bring against the innocent Jewish people who were proven to be innocent by this particular occasion. Well, what is fascinating about this Purim Saragossa story is that it actually took place on the 17th of Shvat, which is today. Today is the anniversary of that great event, the 17th day of Shvat. And what happened then was that, of course, the Jewish people, once they realized what had happened, and once the Beatles had come out with the fact that they had seen this vision of the man, Eliyahu Anovi, who had come to them, or so they thought, and told them that they should replace the Torah scrolls into their boxes, once they saw the miraculousness of this whole story, they broke out into great celebration. And till, I think even today, in the place called Saragossa, there is a concept of Purim Saragossa. There is a Purim story of their own that happened in this place in Spain. They wrote out a Megillah of their own. They read it 
or they used to read it certainly on this particular day and celebrate this great event of Purim Saragossa. They had their own Purim. And if you look into uh, many, many Jewish storybooks, there are so many times that similar stories have been repeated. When we think about the concept of a Jewish festival, of a Chag, of an event, of a whole string of strange consequences. Yes, here in our Purim Saragossa story, we can see such a direct correlation. The idea of an advisor who got the king up to doing what he, what he, what he wanted to do. It was to disgrace all the Jews. It was, um, something that would belittle the whole of Yiddishkeit, of Judaism and so on. It's not to say that the Jews didn't suffer thereafter, but in this particular incident, some strange miracle happened, which was directly reminiscent. The fact that one of the main features of the Purim Megillah that we're going to read in uh, in a month from now, when it is Purim, when we read that and we think about Purim itself, the um, idea of the disturbance of the sleep comes as a big feature. Remember, it was Achashverosh's um, sleep that was disturbed, and he wanted to know about uh, Mordechai having saved his life and so on, and he rewards him rather than punishes him. There are so many profound and very, very direct similarities. Yes, Judaism is not something that just happened once. It's not a story of our history, but it's rather the way that history, as they say, repeats itself, but then it's not history anymore. It's about being current, it's about living with our times, it's about being present in today's day and age and understanding and realizing just how much of Judaism keeps on repeating itself. It's in our blood, it's in our way, it's in our thinking, it's in our philosophy, it's in the way we think about things. It's not something, a story like Purim or a story like Pesach or the events of Mount Sinai or the things of the creation or whatever um, we are focusing on in the history of the Jewish people. It's not something that is filed away. <clears throat> it's celebrated once to be forgotten, to be filed away in the annals of history and never to keep on, to, never to be thought about again. No, it is current and it can happen again. And the power of that kind of event is something that keeps on going. We had one exodus from Egypt, but the exodus is something that we commemorate every single day. In our daily prayers, the idea of crossing of the Red Sea every single day in our daily prayers, the idea of receiving the Torah, something that we do and we think about every single day. That is Judaism. And so as we think about today, the 17th of Shvat, maybe that's what it comes to teach us as well. We do know that the number 17 in Torah is the gematria, the numerical value of Tov, Tov being good. If we take the letter Tet and the letter Vav and the letter Resh, sorry, and the letter Base rather, we've got um, 9 plus 6 plus 2, which is 17. The 17th is Tov. Good time, good day, positive things that have happened. And of course, we are now already in the shadow of the coming upcoming festival of Purim. And what better way to think about it than with Purim Saragossa, this famous and beautiful story that happened in Spain. Back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi and welcome back. I'd like to tell you about another special date that is coming up on this coming Monday. It is the 22nd day of Shvat, otherwise known as Chof Bei Shvat, the 22nd day of Shvat. 
is the yard site, the anniversary of the passing of a very, very significant woman, a lady by the name of Rebetzin Chaya Mushke Schneerson, Lubavitcher Rebbe's wife of 59 years, who passed away on the 22nd of Shvat in 1988. It was February the 10th, and she passed away on that date. There was a huge funeral service that was held, attended by in excess of 15,000 people, they say. But uh, what was significant about the Rabbitson, who, by the way, was born in 1901, 25th of Adar in 1901, in a place called Babinovich, near the Russian city of Lubavitch. She was born on a Shabbat, by the way. And this Rebetzin Chayamushka Schneerson was the daughter of the previous Lubavitch Rebbe. So she came from a great um, and esteemed family lineage, the Rebbe's daughter. Um, of course, later on, she married the Lubavitch Rebbe of our time, um, who was the son-in-law. We did speak about him Last week, the son-in-law of the previous Rebbe, um, who acceded to the leadership of the Chabad movement in 1950. But very little was known of the Rebetzin, um, other than that she was a very, very private person. This person who was the wife of this great, dynamic, and uh, incredibly um, beloved leader of the Chabad Hasidic movement for all those years that he was the Rebbe, she kept a very, very, very low profile. She was a private person. She did her own thing, in fact. For many years, she drove her own car. She uh, worked um, as a librarian in a public library. She had a life of her own. She had friends of her own. She had people who she associated with. But from a public point of view, very, very private life. But she was known for some incredibly powerful uh, lessons that she taught everybody, um, and not the least of which was the fact that she was a completely private, modest woman who never threw her weight around, who never wanted the limelight, who never um, took away one iota of um, her husband's role of the things that he did and that he was involved in. And this incredibly... Um, uh, powerful in a in an inner way, this incredibly powerful woman gave a tremendous amount of um, of the attitude that um, um, Jewish women everywhere can and should have. She was the the in her own right, she was brilliant. She had a um, incredible influence on so many people, and not necessarily in such a public fashion. Because she was all the time conscious of the fact that she was not the Rebbe and she was not going to interfere or uh, or be involved in, in that way in, in public life at all. But in her private capacity, in her private way, and in the way that she allowed and enabled her husband to be the leader that he was, was something that is incredibly, incredibly um uh, praiseworthy and it's something that we look at and we marvel at and of course we only really understood the impact that she had on her husband and on all the work that he did when she passed away and the rabbi spoke about her um, and often used the term yiten el libo, using something from her name Chaya um, because she was Chaya Mushka 
um, using something from her name, this idea of the living need to take to heart. Of course, it's a quote from Tanakh, and of course, it's a Torah verse that he used, but the idea of the living taking to heart. In other words, think about the things that great people have stood for, and it's wonderful to have these great and beautiful stories, and wonderful to have the great and beautiful lives and accolades uh, that they have and that we shower upon them. But we need to take it to heart. We need to do something about it. Um, we need to live by the tenets that they lived by and that they taught. We need to think about their lives and how we can continue them through the good and wonderful things that we do. We'll be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. In honor of the Rabbitson for Chof Shvat, for the 22nd of Shvat, thousands of Jewish women travel from all over the world in order to attend a Shluchos convention. You know, a lot of people know about the Shluchin convention and the grand dinner that is held um, in November, December time, um, the beginning of the month of Kislev, or the end of Cheshvan. Um, but here, on the 22nd of Shvat, in honor of the Rabbitson, a women's convention is held, and... As I said, thousands of women from all over the world, Rabbitsons and um, people from all walks of life, women get together in order to think about and contemplate and discuss the real power of Jewish women um, in Judaism. It gave uh, the ladies, the women in uh, the world, such a powerful message and such a powerful impetus to do more, to reach further to try and to emulate the great example of this great woman, of this great lady, of this great Rebetzin, Rebetzin Chaim Mushkeshniasen. And what better time to do it than at the time of her Yorzeit, when there's a special power and a special energy in the world. So hopefully in honor of these great events, uh, we're thinking about today, uh, Purim Saragossa, we're thinking about um, Monday, which is 22nd of Shvat, we're thinking about the power of each and every one of us, each and every individual, the things that happen in our lives that we sometimes take for granted and we don't necessarily recognize the miracles, but perhaps most importantly, the message that the Rebbe drew from uh, the Libo. what are we actually going to do about it? We need to make good decisions. We need to do good things. We need to improve upon the things that we are doing. The uh, sky is the limit. And then beyond, there is so much that we can do for ourselves, for our fellow men, for our community, for uh, the entire world. And hopefully we will do, and hopefully very soon merit, the bracha that Hashem has promised us, that Mashiach will come and we will have a far, far better world to live in. I want to wish you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead, and look forward to being back with you same time, same place next week on Judaism 101.9.